We now present part one of Mind Matters, introduced by Carol Mang. Good morning, and welcome to the first episode of a new summer lecture series on Radio Three, Mind Matters. I'm Carol Meng. For the next ten weeks, Radio Three will be bringing you a series of abridged talks given recently by experts in all sorts of areas in the lecture theatres and halls of Hong Kong. Our topics will be diverse and thought-provoking, and hopefully, there will be something in each one that you will simply find fascinating. In the 1960s, U.S. chipmakers started to outsource their production lines to Asian countries such as South Korea and Singapore. They moved their factories there with a set of stereotypes, thinking Asian women are particularly good at doing electronics works with their agile Asian fingers. These companies started to build the factories around the workers' families and communities, so people would be more inclined to join them. Today we'll be listening to the story of Fairchild Semiconductor establishing its factory in Singapore. Let's listen now to part of a talk given recently at the University of Hong Kong by Professor Helen Stevens from James Cook University in Australia, called "Fair Children and Factory Girls: Gender, Family, and Space in the Singapore Electronics Industry." So the globalization of Uh, the electronics and semiconductor industries began in the 1960s, as semiconductor firms in Silicon Valley and also later in Europe began to seek cheaper labor for the laborious work of assembling and testing integrated circuits and other microelectronics components. The scholar Lisa Nakamura has written about Fairchild Semiconductor, uh, their first outsourcing experiment on the Shiprock Navajo Reservation in New Mexico, which opened in 1965. But even as this plant was opening in New Mexico, Silicon Valley companies had their eyes on Asia as a further potential source of cheap labor. Not only did Asia have cheap labor to offer, but many of the Westerners involved in establishing operations in Asia believed. As they had for the Navajo, that Asians and particularly Asian women were well suited to electronics works. Racist stereotypes about quote nimble Asian fingers, end quote, and propensities for diligence and docility abounded amongst these future managers. This led to a boom of investment uh, in East and Southeast Asia in electronics in the late 1960s and early 1970s. In addition to low wages and the supposedly docile bodies of Asian workers, Asian governments also offered financial incentives for these companies: low or no taxes, rent, uh, free buildings or rent-subsidized buildings,、uh, and so on. Singapore became particularly attractive for a number of reasons in the late 1960s. Cold War instabilities had plagued plants elsewhere in Asia. Strikes had riddled factories in South Korea, and a factory in Hong Kong had been attacked by Red Guards. Singapore promised, on the other hand, to be a paragon of stability, with tight control over the labor market exercised by the government. 
The government also offered to invest $4 million to build a factory for Fairchild Semiconductor, a key Silicon Valley firm. Fairchild would lease the factory from the government, gradually paying back the investment if their venture was successful. Lorong 3 Topayo, with a footprint of over 20,000 square metres, over two storeys, uh, was Fairchild's factory that the Singapore government built for them. This allowed significant space for expanding the company's local operations. The first floor held both Fairchild administrative offices and the, assembly, and the assembly line, while the ground floor operated a canteen and a workshop. Since the delicate electronic components could be affected by moisture, the plant was also air-conditioned throughout. One of the things that I want to analyze here is the relationship between the development of these factories and the organization of urban space in Singapore. The town of Topayo came essentially to be built around the factory of Fairchild uh, as it built its new town of Topayo. New towns and the flats within them were designed not only to solve Singapore's housing crisis, but to serve as model townships for a, model, a modern way of living and working. Removed from the city centre, but interconnected by transportation networks, the new towns served as paradigmatic examples of 1960s city planning. But the new towns also inscribed particular visions of family and gender. As described in the 1980s by Liu Tai Ker, one of the new town's principal planners, quote, Theoretically, the household head can work, the housewife can shop, and the children can be educated to the pre-university level within a new town. This was to be the ideal Singapore household and nuclear family, living, working, and going to school within a small radius. As the first town planned and built completely by the Housing and Development Board, New Topayo became the first instantiation of the so-called neighbourhood principle, under which four neighbourhoods would encircle a town centre. The town centre would act as a focal point that would provide retail and social spaces, including a pedestrian mall or shopping parade, a market, a library, playgrounds and a swimming pool, as well as a bus transportation hub and other communal facilities, such as a post office. From the beginning, Topayo was designed to include spaces for working as well as for living and playing. The placement of the Fairchild factory into the middle of Topayo fits squarely within this plan. Rather than the residents travelling out of the town for their jobs, they could simply walk to the town centre. This reduced congestion, traffic for example, but it also completed the plan for making the new town a self-contained unit for Singaporean family life. If the new towns were one site for the development of electronics factories, the other was in the newly developed so-called flatted factories. As the Singapore government began to look for new spaces for industrial development, Hong Kong presented some useful exemplars. There, the colonial government had built multi-storey and multi-use factory spaces, which could then be rented out like flats to industrial tenants, hence the name flatted factory. Such spaces were relatively cheap and could house light industries and be built relatively close to the city centre and hence, once again, close to workers and transportation. 
Flattered factories therefore had much in common with the purpose-built factories in the new towns. But unlike the new town factories, like Fairchild's, flattered factories were developed within small industrial estates, forming enclaves of similar or interdependent businesses. Beginning in 1963, the swampy area at the confluence of the Kalang and Wampoa rivers was transformed by the infilling of large amounts of earth transported from nearby Topayo. This was from the flattening of the land uh, for the new town. This earth eventually made available 388 acres of new land, much of which would be devoted to light industry. As with Topayo and other new towns, the development of the site involved the relocation of people, housing, and transportation routes. Kampong, or village dwellers who lived in the tidal basin, were resettled into HDB, or, or new town estates. The Kalang Basin had been, in fact, a thorn in the Singapore government's side. In addition to being a hotbed of left-wing political activity, the area was, according to uh, one public official, quote, notorious for smuggling, illicit distilling, and opium processing, it being an easy matter to dispose of any incriminating goods or equipment into the water of the river when customs raiding parties turned up. The redevelopment of the basin into an industrial estate served the purpose of eliminating such vice as well as providing space for industrial development. Locating factories within the reach of workers was also a key consideration. One approach was to build housing within the estate itself. 4,000 housing units had been constructed by 1969 uh, within the Kalang estate, with a further 11,000 to be added by the early 1970s. But transportation access to Kalang was also a key consideration. Shop houses were demolished in order to widen Kalang Road to enhance access to the industrial estate. And the first section of the new Pan Island Expressway, or PIE, would connect the industrial estate directly to the Topayo new town. As with the new towns, the development of industrial estates with flattered factories fit into Singapore's broader plans for shaping its urban space. This disruptive transportation Transformation went hand in hand with the transformation of labour into more regimented, disciplined and legible forms of work. So, I've said uh, quite a lot about where these factories were located. Now I turn to the part about who were the actual workers. I've already said quite a lot about who these workers were in the sense that they must have come from the new towns. But who, more specifically... Uh, did Fairchild and other companies hope would staff their operations. Liu Fuk Dim puts it quite plainly, quote, the logic of putting a factory in a housing estate was quite simple, to enable women to get income by giving factories the necessary labour. Other scholars have documented how the employment of women in this kind of factory work, both in Singapore and elsewhere, allowed companies like Fairchild to recruit a cheap, flexible, and, as they thought, relatively docile labour force. Women were paid significantly less than men, but also they could be more easily deployed into shift and part-time work. For factories more distant from home, part-time and shift work was difficult, particularly for night shifts when transportation was not readily available or considered to be dangerous. I would divide the women workers that I discuss here into two categories, because this is how they were often considered 
by factory owners and managers. The first category is of married women. As more factories opened and the labor supplies tightened, companies like Texas Instruments and General Electric turned increasingly to housewives as their key labor pool. Encouraged by the Singapore's National Productivity Board, electronics firms targeted advertisements and recruitments, particularly married women looking to supplement their family income. This often meant offering more part-time work rather than very long shifts in order to accommodate childcare and other household responsibilities. Gracia Tae-Chi, president of the Pan-Pacific and Southeast Asian Women's Organization, said, quote, married women, working women, will have to ensure that the home is not neglected. After all, their first concern should be for their husbands and children, end quote. But housewives were often also considered better workers than unmarried women or men. Some factory managers reported that housewives tended to be more reliable and hardworking, but also less, quote, choosy in their jobs. Quote, young girls can change jobs if there's a five cent difference in daily pay or because of the distance or because they have friends in another company or because they don't like their shifts and some quit because there are no shifts. Housewives are more consistent. They will work because they have to supplement their family incomes, end quote. Married women were also more content to work midnight to dawn shifts, going home in time to take care of their morning domestic duties. The precarity of families and the greater burden of responsibilities made housewives even more vulnerable to exploitation than younger women. Factory work also allowed married women and their families to literally buy their way into Singapore's growing prosperity. First, the additional income it allowed women and their families greater access to consumer goods and the burgeoning consumer lifestyle in Singapore. By 1977, for instance, Lee Kuan Yew noted how Singaporean spending habits had changed. There seemed to be less saving, with consumers spending more on shopping, including quality goods and new items in supermarkets and department stores. In addition to food and clothing, home furnishings also became a significant area of spending, reflecting, a store official commented, more young couples setting up homes. In some cases, Singaporeans were buying the very same items that they were making in their factory jobs. Although most Singapore assembled devices were bound for export, by the late 1970s and early 1980s, there was a growing market within Asia, including within Singapore, for electronics goods such as radios, televisions, stereos, battery-powered toys, cameras, watches, and eventually personal computers. Electronics factories encouraged such purchases, going so far as to offer such goods at employee prices to their workers or to offer such items as gifts for signing on with the company. There's also this supplementary income often also allowed Singaporean families uh, to buy, or Singaporean couples, to buy into the Housing and Development Board estates in the new towns that Singapore was just developing. The possibilities associated with work in electronics factories were slightly different for unmarried women. Young, single women went out to work for different reasons, less to make money for their families and children, but rather to gain some level of financial independence for themselves. Although single women usually did not make enough money to move out of home, 
Factory work did give them disposable income and thrust them into a far wider social milieu. Ultimately, the opportunities for women's work had significant effects on Singapore society. You're listening to Radio Three's Mind Matters. Professor Helen Stevens told us about how and why U.S. chipmakers landed on the Asian soils and utilized women in the community to mass-produce tiny gadgets. Now he'll go on to explain why he thinks the area that these companies have relocated to was cultured and gendered in a particular way. Although factory work was empowering for some women, it also sometimes placed them in vulnerable positions. Literature on women factory workers in Singapore has noted that both married and unmarried women in factories were subject to a range of sexual harassment, including advances from male bosses, unwanted touching, and other forms of sexual exploitation, including, for example, being asked to remove clothing for so-called medical examinations. In most cases, the women subject to these forms of harassment felt that calling out such behaviour would have cost them their jobs. Women, especially when they travelled to and from factories at night, also became victims of crimes outside the workplace. The Texas Instruments Internal Company magazine, called Berita, reported in 1973 on new security measures designed to protect workers. Quote, Everyone knows that our young girls dread to walk along this dark stretch of road. That was a stretch of road between two factories. They are in constant fear of snatch thieves and being molested. End quote. Women's fears in factories were not limited to the earthly realm. In 1972, a toy factory in Topayo reported incidents of quote hysteria among female factory workers, supposedly caused by supernatural encounters. The following year, the General Electric Television Factory in nearby Boon Kang Road had 40 female employees also struck struck with hysteria. The women claimed to have seen quote queer figures lurking inside the female toilets, leading to screaming and fainting. Other women showed signs of trance and possession, acting violently towards other staff. One woman reported that the toilets were dirty. And that if they were not cleaned, she would strangle the other female workers. The management called a local bomo or shaman, Taho Suhaimi bin Abdullah, who admitted that quote, most of the cases were merely psychological. I interviewed all cases, and only three of them showed signs of being affected by spirits. But there is nothing to worry about. I have chased all the spirits away, he said. A government report from the Industrial Health Unit in the Ministry of Labor ruled out chemical or physical causes and concluded that prevention of future incidents required quote education of the community and in raising their levels of immunity by inculcating right notions and giving basic facts and eliminating superstitions end quote. In retrospect, it does not seem far-fetched to imagine that women were responding to inappropriate behaviour by their male colleagues and attempting to find ways to call attention to it. At the very least, as Linda Lim has argued, the episode suggests how alienating and disruptive factory work would have been to very many young women. There were also associated with the factories concerns about women's promiscuity. 
including perennial concerns about dorm, factories and dorms being used as brothels. To check their perceived waywardness, young women factory workers once again were perceived to require education. In 1973, the Family Planning Association of Singapore organised a series of, quote, lessons on gracious living, end quote, targeting women at the Jurong Industrial Estate between 16 and 25 years of age, particularly those who had only had a primary school education. Topics would include, quote, individual responsibilities in self-improvement, marriage and the community, as well as general patterns of conduct and family planning. One outcome they hoped would be a decrease in premarital sex. Women in factory work represented a social threat, particularly through their supposed increased sexuality made possible by the increased freedoms that work afforded. Both the episodes of hysteria and the concerns about promiscuity suggest that young women's work was disruptive to both the individual work women who were experiencing it, but also to a society that was adapting to new ways of living and working. Young unmarried women living and working together in large numbers posed a challenge to traditional mores of family life. Ultimately, however, both government and electronics companies addressed these concerns rationally, dispelling supernatural notions and educating women in proper behaviour. These active interventions contributed to the formation of a new, modern set of social norms around family life. Finally, then, I turn to the kind of work that was being done in these factories. What were these women actually doing Although the range of electronics work being performed in Singapore was large and included the assemblies of transistors and other semiconductor devices, the printing of circuit boards, the assembly of consumer electronics and quality control, descriptions and images of the work done in electronics factories often emphasize the neatness of women, their attention to detail, their dexterity and their strong teamwork. Of course, such descriptions were gender and racial stereotypes. But electronics factories also produced such disciplined forms of labor amongst the women who worked within them. Electronics factory work was perceived by company executives, as I've said, to be suitable for women. This not only meant that it provided opportunities for women to enter the workplace, but it also played a particularly important role in shaping gender norms around work in Singapore, generating particular perceptions of women's work. Unlike other jobs or even other factory jobs, electronics work required higher levels of discipline, attention to detail and cleanliness. This is partly because of the nature of semiconductor work or electronics work where uh, small amounts of dirt or dust um, that could get inside these small parts would not be acceptable. Factory bosses needed to deploy and order women's bodies in particular ways that could meet these requirements. The emphasis on cleanliness and discipline in electronics works also links the industry to Singapore's broader efforts from the 1970s onwards to clean up society. As Gregory Clancy has documented, post-colonial Singapore has maintained a preoccupation, even an obsession, with cleanliness. Beginning in 1968, Operation Broomstick extended not only to keeping streets and urban areas clean, but also relating to bodily 
appearance, most notably no long hair for men, bans on street hawkers, fines for littering and spitting, and the gradual phasing out of most forms of animal agriculture, and the attempts to eliminate insect-borne diseases were all framed in terms of public health and hygiene. As a clean industry suitable for proximity to housing estates, as well as one that demanded a clean and hygienic workforce, the electronics industries were a perfect complement to Singapore's broader ambitions for social and hygienic reform. Electronics factories were not only places of work. As we have seen, their operation and development were closely bound to the geographies and routines of domesticity. But factories were also places of recreation and socialization. Recreation in particular was encouraged by many firms. Texas Instruments, for example, listed recreational activities as one of the benefits of their working environment and in job advertisements from the 1970s. These activities included company dinners, picnics, award presentations and ceremonies, and field trips. For example, in 1973, Telecast magazine, again an internal um, company publication, reported on its annual picnic, which took place at Tanamara Holiday Camp. The day included activities including a tug-of-war, a centipede race, a talent show, and a parade of models. Fairchild organized an annual big walk around Topayo to mark Singapore's National Day. Much of this recreation was marked by gender. Factories, for example, held their own beauty pageants for women. In 1974, New Nation, a Singapore uh, national newspaper, reported that Veronica Tan, a clerk at National Semiconductor, competed in the Miss Singapore contest after she had won the National Semiconductor Electronics Queen title. Texas Instruments, in particular, became particularly well-known for its efforts in promoting recreation amongst its staff. The Texans Recreation Association was formed in 1969 and by 1972 had appointed a former boxing champion, Al Mun Hong, as a full-time sports administrator. Al set up a range of recreational activities for Texas Instruments employees, ranging from sports such as soccer and archery to games, picnics, talent shows, sauna baths, round island cruises, and even international trips. The TRA caters for everyone, Al remarked, from the rugged to the, quote, softies who prefer indoor games, which are less exerting, end quote. Al expected most women to prefer netball and badminton, while men would take on what he called tougher games. Such activities, Texas Instruments Management imagined, would create more alert employees who would be less prone to accidents. Company-based soccer became particularly visible. The result of matches between rival electronics teams were widely reported in local newspapers, including in the Malay language dailies. Texas Instruments, Fairchild, Hewlett-Packard, IEEE, and NS Electronics all had their own teams. By 1974, a women's league the Women's Football Association of Singapore, was constituted by teams including Fairchild and Texas Instruments. So, what might this tell us about the longer story of the globalization of semiconductors? Here, my conclusions, at least at the moment, are more speculative. When commentators talk about the global chip wars, they usually attribute the problem to technical or to financial factors that 
fab labs and factories take a long time to set up and are very expensive. But this story, the story that I've told here, suggests a social or cultural component to electronics as well. That in fact, areas where electronics production takes place need to be cultured and gendered in particular way. Perhaps we can see what happened in Singapore and more broadly in Southeast Asia as also a kind of zoning. This involved the outsourcing not just of production, but of the creation of particular kinds of spatial and cultural conditions within which electronics manufacturing could flourish. This, as I've shown, included particular gender norms, particular kinds of family life, and particular ways of living and working that were closely linked to factory work. It is notable that Singapore, with the help of multinational companies, has now exported this model into its local region, using cheap labour elsewhere from elsewhere in Southeast Asia. For example, Infineon has its headquarters in Singapore, uh, not far from Topayo, in fact, but its production is actually located on nearby Indonesian islands of Bintam and Batam. The globalization, then, of chip manufacturing and electronics is not just a story of building factories, training engineers, and exporting products, but also a story about producing and reproducing particular kinds of workers and particular kinds of work. Singapore now exports a particular brand of social and disciplinary formation on which a wide range of microelectronics production relies. That was Professor Helm Stevens from James Cook University. I'm Carol Mang. Join me next Sunday morning for more Mind Matters. Thank you.